I'd like to introduce Ann Foster, who will um, do our presentation on Packing for Yellowstone, Dress and Culture in the World's First National Park. Uh, Ann is a Yellowstone National Park archivist and living history interpreter. Uh, previously, she held archivist positions at the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, the Montana Historical Society, Fort Lewis College, and the Shallot Hall Museum. She holds a Master's of Library Science with an Archives Concentration from the University of Maryland and a BA in History from Montana State University in Bozeman. As a living history interpreter, Anne has worn a corded petticoat while baking biscuits in 1864, Arizona. I'm not sure how you did that time work. Um, uh, she has worn a hoop skirt while dealing pharaoh in 1865, Montana, and a bustle to travel by narrow gauge train through 1876, Colorado. So please welcome our guest, Anne Foster. Thank you. So I'm going to be doing a couple of different things all at once. Uh, I've got the slides with a bunch of historical photographs to show you, but I also have some real life examples to take a look at as we go along. Let's see. So I had a number of questions when I started this. One of the first questions was just, if the National Park is new, what is it that people are going to wear? And this is particularly important during the time that Yellowstone was established in 1872, because in that point of time in the 19th century, you had very rigid rules in terms of what you could wear and what was worn for different types of activities. So I was really curious, if you have something completely new and out of the ordinary, how did people adapt their clothing to fit into that model and figure out what they could do? I was also really interested in this because following the Civil War is a really interesting time period for fashion and clothing, in, particularly in America. Um, following the Civil War, there are a lot of economic, technical, and social changes that occur that actually have an impact on clothes beyond what they look like. First and foremost, following the Civil War, there was a great boon in the middle class, particularly in the North. And so that meant that many people could acquire more clothing than they ever had before. At the start of the 19th century, clothing was so valuable that people would actually will them to somebody else in their family. Um, the cost of clothing, it's been estimated uh, as a percentage of income, was the equivalent of what we today spend on housing. So textiles and clothing were very expensive. But that really changes, especially after the Civil War, because of the mechanization in the Civil War. Um, you know, right before the Civil War, you have the textile mills in uh, New England, and so that starts the process. People begin to, you don't have to weave your clothing at home. You can purchase your fabric that's already been woven, so it, it, the cost comes down. It's much easier, which means that you can then acquire more fabric right around the same time as the Civil War in the late 1850s. We have Singer inventing the sewing machine. And um, so that speeds up the process of creating clothing. You no longer have to hand sew it. You can sew it much faster. And then right after the Civil War, Singer um, comes up with an even better innovation, which is rent to buy, or <laughs> paying in installments. He's actually one of the first to implement that. And so many, many more people could acquire the sewing machine than ever before. And that, again, increased and changed the way people were working. 
During the Civil War, because of the uniforms that had to be made for men, a lot of clothing became ready to wear for the first time. You could actually buy something all the way completely made, particularly the men. Uh, so that impacts clothing and how you decide what to wear. Um, and all of those things really come into play as we go forward. I was also really interested in terms of how gender maybe played a role. Um, men, of course, were much more used to being active and outdoors. So did that play a role in how their clothing did or did not change versus how clothing for women did or did not change? Um, I mentioned before that the clothing for specific activities was quite rigid. So then if you have a specific outfit that you're allowed to wear if you're traveling versus if you're um, going to visit a friend or going to like a hotel, a fancy hotel, uh, or doing something athletic, um, you know, in the 19th century you could do horseback riding, you still could do hiking or walking for a distance. So what was Yellowstone classified as in terms of uh, clothing? What did people wear? And then what were the differences by class? How did the high-end people, the people that were coming later on by train and uh, staying in the hotels differ from the people who might be coming by wagon and horseback and camping and sagebrushing? Now, I'm focusing on it, the fact that Yellowstone was new for visitors, and I'm going to mostly focus on the clothing of those visitors, but I don't want to neglect to acknowledge the residents that were already here and already knew what to wear in Yellowstone. And so here's some examples. Um, and one of the mountain men, Osborne Russell, quotes that they were all neatly dressed in deer or sheepskin of the best quality. And I think that's key to really talking about the indigenous folks who lived here in this region that there was a, a, a practical progress to the clothing, they knew what to wear, they had a process for creating it, uh, and it was of, actually, the region, of and for the region. So we've got some examples here. The, uh, the for you, bottom left, uh, is the Tekutika, also known as the sheep eaters. Uh, then we have the Lemai Shoshone, Shoshone Bannock, and the Nimipu or Nez Perce. Um, and the, it also sort of timeline goes around in a circle as well. So this is an earlier photograph and then uh, the top photograph in the center is about 1880 uh, and then on the left and on the horseback that's actually a kind of a reenactment of the Nez Perce War. So the photograph was taken in 1900 but they're still wearing more of the ceremonial outfit. So I wanted to kind of show the difference between uh, regular day-to-day -day clothing versus perhaps more celebratory uh, clothing going on. So while we won't be talking too much about it, and, and that's not really my area of expertise, and I certainly couldn't um, come to talk about all the, the different tribes and their different clothing cultures, I do want to acknowledge. And of course for Yellowstone there are 27 associated tribes, so there are many more tribes than the ones that I have shown here. So let's start with the very earliest period, the explorers. We have some examples and discussions of the explorers. Private William White, who was on the Washburn Langford Doan expedition, he's talking about the types of clothing that they were allowed to wear, even though they were soldiers, while they were out on field campaign. Uh, apparently Doan was quite lax um, out in the field and allowed a lot of people to get away with a lot. So they wore overalls, jumpers, also known as sweaters, um, irregular boots or shoes, by which I mean not ones issued by the army, 
Um, also, irregular hats or caps, or you didn't have to wear a hat at all, which would not have been allowed at all in polite society. You would have had to have a hat on if you were outdoors. Um, there are quotes in terms of people saying that if they um, left the house without a hat, it would have had to be an emergency, a child screaming or the house next door burning down. Um, so you took off your apron and you put on a hat um, if you were outside. That was the only thing you could do in polite society. So it was allowed to remove your hat. So definitely we're getting a hint that Yellowstone is perhaps a bit more informal. Um, you can also see that there is a need, I think probably pretty obviously, for thick woolen clothing, sturdy boots, and broad-brimmed hats. That's all very practical in terms of being out in the wilderness in all kinds of weather. Um, and you can um, imagine what people are going forward with. Um, we've got some examples here uh, in terms of the photographs. Um, we have the uh, Hayden Expedition on the bottom left with the Jackson photograph. So this is in camp. Um, and clearly, even though quite a few of the people were, that were participating were soldiers, none of them looked like they would pass muster. Um, and uh, in fact, several of the gentlemen are in just their shirt sleeves, which at the time was considered underwear. So a shirt was part of your underwear. And so you would always have something over top, either a vest or a jacket or uh, an overshirt. And then on the top right is Jim Bridger. Um, so you can see that he is also wearing typical clothing of the day, particularly for informal wear. Um, and then, of course, we don't have any photographs of Coulter because he didn't wear a lot of clothing while he was in Yellowstone. <laughs> Here are some examples of early visitors. The very earliest visitors were, of course, men. Um, and so we've got some examples. The Earl of Dunraven has a nice quote about, again, being practical in terms of being comfortable in camp. Um, give up the idea of being too comfortable if he tries to carry out his preconceived ideas as to cleanliness and dry changes of clothes, warm things for cold weather, and cool garments for hot, boots for riding and boots for walking and all the rest of the appliances of civilized life, he will find himself constantly worried and continually disappointed. So um, that talks a little bit about the hardship of, of being out in the wilderness, but it also gives you an idea of what was expected for usual travel, right? You had to have different kinds of boots. You had to have indoor boots or walking boots versus riding boots. You had to have changes of clothing. So all of those things are examples of, of differences in terms of the clothing for Yellowstone. This woodcut is from Dunraven's book, and I think it offers a good example of class. So the person in the plaid on the right, I suspect, is Dunraven, the Earl of Dunraven. So of course he was an upper class British gentleman, much more wealthy than the people that were in his retinue. And you can see the clothing. He's got a jacket on, he's got very tight fitted, probably particularly specified riding pants designed specifically for riding, um, which would be more fitted. Um, and so he is over there. Um, and then you have some of the workmen here in the front. The gentleman on the far right is in his shirt sleeves, but he's still got a vest on. So that's kind of an indication that they're still keeping up some civilization going on. And then he's rolled up his sleeves. The gentleman standing is wearing an overshirt, and I'll show you a better example of that as we go forward. Um, but an overshirt was almost like a smock, or um, what we would now call a shacket. Um, so it was it was a wool garment that was worn over top of your under your cotton undershirt, 
and um, it was often used for work. Um, it was loosely fitted, it would wear hard, um, but it was still acceptable to be in public with that over top of your undergarment type shirt. And then we've got a couple of other examples. Um, we've got Philetus Norris, um, who has adopted what he thinks was what the mountain men wear. Um, Langford also was a big advocate of at least being photographed in buckskins, whether or not he wore them in, in um, private. Um, and then the person on the right is William H. Blackmore. He and his wife came in 1872, so they were some of the first official traveling visitors who came here specifically to visit the new national park. And so he, um, he visited, he was also a collector, he collected and photographed many of the Plains tribes and took uh, quite a bit of material back with him to England. Um, so he's photographed here, he, this probably was not what he wore in the park, but it just kind of gives you an example of the exceptionalism that people were viewing at the time that the park was um, and taking photographs. I realize Norris is not actually a visitor in the technical sense since he was one of the superintendents, but we often consider him a bit of a visitor since he wasn't actually on the ground. Many of the civilian superintendents weren't actually in the park all that often. Um, and so they, it gives you an example of what people wanted to portray versus what the reality might have been. Now I'm going to have my first model come up if um, Jeff will come up and um, I will talk a little bit about changes in men's clothing. Men's clothing is really kind of boring, so I'm not going to go much further on. <laughs> um, men's clothing after the Civil War, prior to the Civil War, of course, if you think about the 1600s, 1700s, men's clothing, men were the fashion plates. They were the ones that wore the wild clothing because they earned the wealth, so they wanted to show it off. But through the 18th century, men become less and less interested in fashion as a whole. And during the Civil War, they hit on the idea of what they then called the sack suit, and what we would today call the three-piece suit. And they pretty much stuck it out now for the next 150 years in terms of three-piece suits. So you don't see a lot of difference. But there are some things here that you can see. This is a slightly later era. You can primarily tell that by the shape of his hat. He's wearing a bowler hat, which becomes more popular in the late 19th century, and his type of tie. So the bow tie, a narrower bow tie, comes in in the late 19th century. Earlier to that, you'd have a wider, softer cravat to tie. And that's really all you can tell. Um, the rest of the outfit is very similar to what the gentleman in the woodcut would be wearing. He's got the, tr the trousers on that are a fly front, um, and while he could have purchased them at this point, cut like this, you would, they didn't really understand sizes yet, so they would build in things that would help in terms of fitting. So the very back of the trousers have a little tab, and you can pull it up and buckle it to different waist sizes to adjust for fit at that point. They're also quite baggy, and that's, I mean, it's not his clothing, so that's always a challenge, but that's actually fashionable at this time. You want really baggy seats um, in terms of most of the clothing, unless you're specifically in riding garments. So baggy seated pants are really typical all the way up through the turn of the century in, in terms of clothing. Now he's got an alternative cap. If you wanted to be highly fashionable for 1900, Oh, the young, hot gentleman would wear the newsboy cap, which at least gave you a bit of a brim um, going forward. So if you wanted to be jaunty, he could do that. 
All right. Thank you, Jeff. So we'll see some photographs of um, gentlemen uh, going forward, but I won't be talking and focusing on them as much as we go forward. Um, since, as I said, they've hit their groove now. They know what they like, and they're going to stick with it for the next hundred years. So the next lady I'd like to talk about is Mary Blackmore. She was supposed to be the first white visitor to Yellowstone National Park. Sadly, she fell ill um, from Helena to Bozeman and passed away in Bozeman. Um, so she didn't make it to the park. But Mount Blackmore in Yellowstone is named in her honor because she died. Um, and I, it, she really posed some questions for me in terms of what she wore because there were a lot of potential differences that might have happened and I wasn't sure what she might wear. Unfortunately, I can't tell you for sure, but I'm going to tell you what her options are. I looked, I read William's diaries, um, which are extremely brief and were on reverse microfilm that were then photographed in the mid 20th century and a copy of which we have in the park. Um, so I had to read white text on black. Uh, he says nothing. He said, in fact, his entire sentence for his wife's death is, poor Mary passed away today. And that, and that was it. Um, <laughs> his nephew also wrote a much, much more eloquent diary, but again, he, while he mentions Mary, he does not actually talk too much about clothing. And that's pretty typical um, in terms of, if you want to know what people were eating, or wearing, you have to read the, women, the diary of women um, because the men very rarely mention it. Um, so we don't know exactly what she wore, but we have some other examples. The center photograph here is a traveling garment from the time. So this is a specific garment that was only created for travel, um, so for the dusty roads and uh, whether by stagecoach or you know, on the East Coast by train, this was something that you would wear for travel. It is linen. It is the only garment at the time that is worn by linen. Linen has fallen completely out of favor for any other kind of garment. Um, in, instead, it's now cotton is the, the most common garment for um, informal wear. Uh, but this is linen because it can be waxed and it can be cleaned more easily. It's also a single color, which uh, helps with both fading by the sun and washing. Um, and it's light colored, so it can be, you can be kept cool as well. Um, so she could have worn something like that because she was traveling. We do know that she was riding side saddle to get here. Uh, we know that because when she passed away, her husband gifted the um, Wilson family, and that's uh, in Bozeman, that's the Fred Wilson family. It was his parents. Um, and she was ill at their house, and they cared for her while her husband left her to go into the park. Um, and then when she died, he gifted them. I almost feel like he just left it behind because he didn't want to carry it. But he gifted them her side saddle. I wish I knew where that had gone, but um, I have not been able to track it down. Um, so we know she was riding side saddle. And there were some options for riding side saddle. Now, if you were in Britain and were riding side saddle, you would have worn riding breeches underneath an incredibly voluminous skirt that would cover not only you, but your, the back half of your horse as well. And that, of course, would not have been practical. So we're not sure what she would have worn. The other option is um, demonstrated here by Lady Isabella Bird, another wealthy English woman who came to the Western United States um, a little bit later in the 1870s. 
And what she's wearing is reform dress. And reform dress is basically Amelia Bloomer. So, of course, in the 1840s, Amelia Bloomer um, starts to wear the trousers, loose-fitted trousers, with a shorter skirt over top. Um, and while that she got ridiculed and the other suffragettes got ridiculed for wearing that outfit um, and quickly um, discarded it, it did continue to be used for certain occasions and by certain people. Um, there were several sects, religious sects, that adopted reform wear, and um, certain people like Lady Isabella Bird, who had the wealth to continue to um, to sort of go against the grain a bit, um, were able to wear this kind of outfit. Now, Isabella Bird wears this while she's on the trail, but she also packs a black silk dress. Um, so that when she's in town or staying with people, she can dress in proper clothing. So it's possible that Mary wore exactly what the type of thing that you see in the photograph. This is probably a photograph taken just before they left, um, so in the late 1860s, um, and she would have worn a heavy black silk dress. Um, that was a possibility. Or at least she would have packed that to go along so that when she was with the Wilsons, she was able to change from her riding garments into something like that. Now what we do know for sure was being worn was born by Sarah Tracy in 1874. Sarah um, was the wife of William Tracy, another Bozeman pioneer, and um, she says in her account of her trip in 1874, I stood by the fire to dry my clothes. My dress had a long polonaise of calico, and when it got dry, caught fire, and the whole back was burned off. So calico at this point probably meant simply cotton, not necessarily a sprigged cotton like we think of it today, or flowered cotton. So the example that you see here, um, this is not her outfit, but um, it's a, the type of thing she would have been wearing in 1874, um, and that's of cotton. Um, cotton at that point was considered the work dress of the time. It was something that you could launder more easily. And so that would have been something he would have worn to do heavy work um, or to go outside. So that makes sense that she would have been wearing her calico. The polonaise is a description of the style of the 1870s. So the 1860s is hoop skirt. And then after the Civil War, as I said, people become more capable of acquiring clothing and fabric is cheaper and you can sew more clothing because you have sewing machines and instead of actually reducing the amount of time women spent on clothing, it, they just kept the same amount of time and you just had to wear more of it. And that meant the bustle and this double skirt or overskirt. So that's the polonaise. And that probably explains how she managed to catch on fire. Because a whole bunch of her uh, that wasn't actually her was sticking out further than she expected and caught fire. So she probably lost this little bit here of bustle in the back of her dress. Now she also describes a photograph that was taken. Um, she, um, her name was Sarah. Her traveling companion was also Sarah. And um, that was Sarah Graham um, and her husband, Sarah Graham's husband. So they were part of the party that were traveling together. And she describes meeting Commodore Topping and his partners they had completed a good-sized sailboat. The Commodore was waiting for ladies to ride in his boat, the first ones to name it. 
As both our names were Sarah, we readily agreed to christen the boat the Sally. We had a fine sail across the lake and our pictures taken on board after the name was painted on the side. This is a Christman stereo view, and I believe this is probably Sarah Tracy and Sarah Graham in the photograph. Um, it's just identified uh, on the stereograph as the Sally, the boat, the Sally. Um, but if you take a look at that close-up on the top right, that's definitely two women in the, in the photograph. And so I suspect that this photograph um, is Sarah Tracy, her husband William, Sarah Graham, Mr. Graham, which I take great pride in not knowing his first name, <laughs> because so often you know the man's name and then it's Mrs. whatever. Um, Commodore Eugene Topping and Frank Williams and obviously Topping had one other partner but I wasn't able to find out the name of it um, so I suspect that this may well be one of the first photographs of women in Yellowstone National Park in 1874 so I'm very excited about that part of it now you're probably wondering what all went into that clothing so I'm going to try to shift over here Alright, so my next model, this is Lulu. We will start from the skin out, and since Lulu has no cheeks to be embarrassed by, I can show you what her unmentionables look like. So we will start with her drawers. Now you're probably wondering, how did you do your business while you were in something that, that uh, encumbering? Um, well, it, that's because you had no middle. <laughs> so, now Lulu has no legs, so we can dress her as we see here. And then on top of that, you would have what we would call a slip, what they called in the day a chemise. Now these two garments were probably the most important and hard-wearing garments because these were the ones that wore, you wore next to your skin. So if you sweated or anything like that, this was what got dirty. And all your expensive fabrics, your wools, your silks, that didn't get, have to be washed because the only part that needed to be washed was this nice, crisp underwear. Um, also, it was tended to be primarily white. You could have other colors, but it was most often white because you could bleach it, um, again, to keep it clean. So this would be the next part. Um, it also served the purpose of helping you um, avoid chafing. but I don't see it, so. We will move on. So next, before you put your corset on in any case, um, and I have learned this to my detriment, you must put on your shoes. 
because once you've put your corset on, it's really hard to reach your shoes. So you would put your stockings on, and then to hold your stockings up, now this is, they had elastic, but they didn't have narrow types of elastic yet, like weddings would have today. You would have your garter. So you would have a knitted, stretchy garter, which goes around your legs, and you can tie it off, and it would dangle down. And then you would have your boots. And so at this point, uh, we will hear more about shoes as we go on, um, but you would have some kind of boot that would button up, possibly, or lace up. Um, and in the 1870s, we still had fairly nice rounded toes and low heels. Ah, that's the one. This one. Okay. So then we have the corset. Now, you did not need a maid for the corset because by this point in the 1860s, we have this lovely invention called the busk. And the busk is an item that hooks in the front. So you can have it laced in the back and then hook it around to the front by yourself. Okay, so you have it in the front and then you yourself can reach around and grab hold of these little ears and pull and then pull it around to the front to tie it off. So, gone with the wind and the bedpost. I think by now we all know Hollywood lies. So, now she has her her corset on. And this actually serves a pretty good purpose. Um, it, it's not the evil beast that we've been led to believe. Um, the, the idea that it is a horrible garment um, comes actually from people who wanted to sell better ones. Um, so instead of this type of nice homemade one, in the turn of the century they start to create health corsets of various kinds. Um, which were actually actually physically worse for you, but at the time they were trying to sell them. So they were telling you this was uncomfortable. Um, but if you think about it, if you're doing laundry, everybody's laundry for a week, and you're hauling big kettles of water, or you know, eight, 15 children, um, that's a lot of heavy work. And what happens today if you go to Home Depot and you ask a guy to lift a bunch of lumber for you? What do they put on? They call it a truss, but it's a corset. So you're getting your, your support from this. Um, and most women, they would have, to a greater or lesser degree, you know, um, the number of stays, but most women would have worn this all the time, including in the park, because they didn't have anything else to support them. Um, let me take a vote. How many of you as women, if you go camping, how, often, how many of you still wear a bra? Most women. Same thing. If you don't have something, it's not really all that comfortable. So um, you're going to have your corset on regardless. Now you could, and you saw the back here, she's smaller than the corset is, so it's tightly closed. But in fact, most commonly you would have about a three inch gap in the back. And that would allow you some ease of movement. Um, but that also meant that every time they tell you that the corset is 18 inches around, it's not actually 18 inches around. It would have fit more like a 22 or 23 inch waist because of the gap in the back. Now, if you were going to a ball 
and you want it to be particularly fashionable, you could tighten it a little extra. If you were going to do, you know, camping in Yellowstone, maybe you don't tighten it so much. So you had some options in terms of comfort as part of the, the corset wearing. All right, next we have a petticoat. Petticoats were often white, but they didn't have to be, particularly in the earlier period when you still had fairly long skirts. You might wear a colored petticoat because it would show, and that would both keep it, you know, it would hide dirt as you needed, um, but it would also be more acceptable if it showed. Yes. <laughs> so you've got the petticoat, and we'll actually take a peek at how it goes next. Now, later on, and we'll see some photographs of the full-on bustle, but in this early period in 1874, we're still working with softer bustles. So this is a softer horsehair bustle, made from plastic horses in the modern era. But that starts to give you that nice poof out the back. Then we go on top. Now she could have a full blouse on, but she wouldn't necessarily have to. This helps keep you a little bit cooler. What we would call a dicky now, so it's just the front half of the shirt, because you'd never go without anything else. You getting tired yet? <laughs> And that's a benefit. I, like I, as uh, my introduction said, I've worn this kind of clothing in Arizona in the summertime, cooking over a fire. And it wasn't as bad as you'd think because not having the sun on, on you all the time is actually fairly cooling. This is all natural fibers, so it wicks as you begin to glow. Um, and that's naturally cooling, sort of like a swamp cooler. Um, and then you've got a whole bunch of volume going on here, so the air can circulate underneath. And we'll see examples like my shirt with the bigger sleeves. Again, the air is able to circulate, so um, it kind of helps with going along. And then, because in the 1870s, there's never enough, you add the polonaise or overskirt. And clearly Sarah Tracy was wearing one because it burnt up. So she felt like she couldn't go without, even though she was in the middle of nowhere. Okay, finally, we get to put a top on. Now, I don't know if she would have added this next part because you know she was in the wilderness, but in, in polite society, she was not nearly close to done. Because again, you're not done until you can wear nothing more. So you might have had, I mean, this was the era where, because of the rise in the middle class, you were trying to show off your wealth and that you were a lady of leisure and could get away with all of this fabric and your husband could afford all of this extra fabric and all of this extra trim which was now, you know, made by machine, um, so it was cheaper and you could buy yards of it rather than just a little bit that you had to hand make. So you have extra. Um, all right, so 
This is the bulk of the clothing style, but now they're on a boat, so they're probably cold. So you've got a nice wool coat. And I think this really looks quite a bit like what the woman on the right there has on. You can see the sloped shoulders. And it does keep you admirably warm. Even though I volunteer only in the summertime in Virginia City, um, it snowed there in the summer like it can in Montana. And um, this is nice and toasty, so this really helps. And then you're not done yet. So the woman on the left is clearly wearing a sunbonnet. Hers has an even longer curtain, um, but this, this is not fashion. This is very eminently practical. This is keeping the sun off of the back of your neck and off of your shoulders. So there's a real, a real purpose to this kind of curtain. Um, and the same, you know, this, you, you don't have sunglasses. So you need something to keep the sun off of your face and out of your eyes. So you have kind of this deep tunnel um, and you can see that it's quite covering her face. You can see her face, um, but it's, it's, it's forward of her, her face quite a bit to protect her. Yes? I'm loving this. Oh. <laughs> and I want to get a photo of this skirt. It's a little bit mixed up on this far side. Now, I'm not sure what, um, what the lady on the right is wearing for sure. Um, it's a, it's, it doesn't look like an 1874 hat of any sort that I've ever seen. So my best guess is that she's wearing something for a particularly cold environment called a pumpkin bonnet. Um, and this is one style of pumpkin bonnet, but they do, there is another style of pumpkin bonnet that's at least two layers and that folds back. And I think that might be what we're looking at and why it looks a little weird on her head is that it's, it's something that, that's stiffened, but then she's folded it back for the photograph. Um, but I suspect that that's what it is because all the other styles of hats for this era, nothing looks quite like that. So I suspect that that's what she's, um, what she's wearing. All right. So now, finally, after, what, half an hour, you're probably you're exhausted and running, ready to go to bed. Um, but this is dressed. <laughs> All right, moving forward. So in 1881, we have another reminiscence, and I should pause here and give a huge shout out to M. Mark Miller, the author, um, and his two books, particularly his newest book, Side Saddles and Geysers, um, because he has compiled many, many first-person accounts of people in Yellowstone, and the Side Saddles and Geysers focuses on women in Yellowstone, um, and most of the quotes uh, in my talk have come from his, his talk. Um, so we don't know the name of this lady. She published a book or an article in a popular magazine about her trip to Yellowstone in 1881 and um, HWS, but um, she talks about what she wears and uh, also what the gentlemen wear. So starting with the gentlemen, our proud clothes we left in Ogden to be picked up on our return. The three ladies of the party, myself and my two daughters, wore short flannel suits with Turkish trousers. The gentlemen wore flannel shirts and winter coats and pants with brown duck overalls for protection from rents and holes. So on the right is the Turkish trouser. So the Turkish trouser is basically a bloomer. It's a very full pant that's gathered together at the ankles. 
Um, and then she's got the shorter skirt over top. Uh, neither of these are her. Um, we've got an example from a magazine, and then this is a, ma a mountaineer um, who is climbing in her Turkish trouser outfit. Um, she is another one who um, there might be a photograph of somewhere. In her diary, she recounts having her photograph taken. Um, all three women are on horseback. Um, she is put in the center because she was, she says, the uh, stoutest of the group uh, and the oldest. So she is in the center on horseback. Um, and the, the photographer who took her photograph was intending to blow the image up to 15 feet and have it on display in the park. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that's Haynes it seems like that would be the person most likely to blow something up to 15 feet for display. And as the Historical Society continues its big digitization project, I'm hoping that that photograph is going to turn up and we're going to find a photograph very early of three women on horseback with a stouter lady in the middle. But in the interim, um, you can see some examples of what she might have looked like. Uh, and then um, the two men, the red shirt, that is that flannel shirt. So that's an overshirt or a smock-like thing worn over the white undershirt. And then there's an example of the overall. Again, it's kind of worn over top to protect things, um, not a garment by itself. Um, and here's the gentleman with his jaunty sailor cap or, or newsboy cap on. Carrie Strayhorn comes here in 1882. She rides all over the West with her husband, whom she refers to as Pard. Um, and around the turn of the century, she publishes her account as a full volume, a full book. Um, she doesn't talk as much as Lady Isabella Bird does about her clothing. Um, she talks a lot about other people's clothing, and she has some really snarky things to say about a couple of young ladies in Colorado. Um, <laughs> and the red, flancy, um, blouses that they're wearing that are completely impractical. Um, and it does seem as though she is eminently practical. Uh, she and her husband, Pard, also have a really, really um, loving marriage. They, they joke to each other quite a bit. Um, so she's talking about her shoes, um, which we will hear a bit more about as we go along. But shoes would be an important factor uh, going forward in terms of Yellowstone. Not only are you walking um, and hiking and climbing um, and riding horseback, but there are the thermal features to think about in terms of shoes. So Carrie says he, Pard, had persuaded me to buy a very heavy pair of shoes in Virginia City because the ground was so hot in some sections of the park that thin soles were not at all safe to wear. And in some sections of the park that thin soles were not at all, oh, I doubled it, I'm sorry, and would be burned through. Then he proceeded to hold them up to ridicule all day. Um, to the point that she challenges him um, to a wager, telling him that she can put uh, both her feet in his shoes. And he takes her up on it, and she proceeds to put one foot in the boot and then the other foot in the boot at a different, you know, taking out the first foot and putting in the second foot, because she never said both at the same time. She just said both feet. And he concedes and gives her the $5 that, um, <laughs> that she could have worn. Now, as you can see here, we've moved from the early 1870s type of bustle that's known as first bustle era, uh, and now we're to second bustle era. And second bustle becomes much more rigid. Um, it's not that soft, flouncy horsehair type of, of, of bustle that we had before. Now we have whalebone, 
and it's a rigid thing that looks like this. And the lacing actually goes against your bum and that helps kind of hold it away from your body a little bit. And you can see examples, they were indeed wearing bustles because this woman here in the center clearly has more bum than is natural sticking out behind there underneath her shirt. Um, and this is definitely a photograph, this is a Haynes photograph um, from the early 1880s. Um, and um, so it's sticking out behind. They're also, of course, standing on the mammoth terraces, so those heavy-duty boots are going to be coming in pretty handy pretty soon if they continue standing there much longer in front of the Liberty Cap. So a little bit more about um, sort of the practicalities of ha what was happening while you were in Yellowstone. This is continuing in terms of Carrie Strayhorn, and as I said, she's eminently practical. She's talking about how you might do laundry and clean things. Um, near one of the small laundry geysers sat a workman who had been haying in a meadow close by, Alicia, <laughs> and whose facial expression betokened deep trouble. After some questioning, he said the boys told him that if he put his woolen shirt, again, that's that overshirt, that red woolen overshirt, in the geyser when it was getting ready to spout, that the cleansing waters would wash it perfectly clean while it whipped in the air. He had followed their advice and was holding a piece of flannel about three inches square. So it, um, it had shrunk and probably disintegrated. In his fingers, he said that it was all he could find of his shirt when the waters got quiet. And he said he guessed it had gone down to hell to be ironed. And he marched declaring he would lick them fellers if they'd not buy him a new shirt. Now again, this is an overshirt, so he's not completely enclosed. He's got his white undershirt or his, his narrow patterned undershirt on. So he's not bare chested. Um, he's got, he was wearing two shirts and he's washed one and lost one. Um, these are some later photographs. Um, you can see on the bottom um, where they're, it doesn't look like you could get much clean, but they are indeed doing laundry in, in some of the thermal features. And then on the top, of course, is handkerchief pool where you're supposed to drop your dirty soil handkerchief in and it will whirl around and spit it back out to you, pristinely white. Um, so they're testing that. Continuing in the 1880s, um, we have a couple of other uh, women from 1883 and 1889. Um, and this is talking a bit more about all the accoutrements and how they carried things. So uh, in 1883, Margaret Cruikshank says, behind the carriage was a boot where were stored a small tent, blanket and cooking utensils, oats and a bucket for the horses, provisions, our wraps, so something like the coat here that, she, that uh, Lulu is wearing, waterproofs, which would have been rubber um, or oiled silks. So they did have rubberized outer garments, kind of like raincoats, um, starting in the Civil War, so waterproofs. They also might have had just cloth that they were sitting on, so what the folks on the bottom are sitting around might be a waterproof, so it could be a ground cloth. Uh, handbags, handbags, which is where you would put your underwear. So you probably only had one outer dress um, that you would wear the entire time, but you would have a change of undergarments again because that could be washed and laundered and would be getting the dirtiest. So you'd fold up your chemise and your drawers very tiny and put them in the handbag. And this is modeled, this was, is a reproduction that is based on a pattern from Godey's Ladies Book. 
in uh, the late 1860s, and this style continues going forward. Uh, and guidebooks. Um, and then Georgina Singe says that we took about eight blankets and a Macintosh cover, um, a small leather portmanteau, again, sort of like the pocketbook, but a bit larger, that contained our changes of raiment and toilet necessaries and medicines. So the bottom right is a group, again, this is from the 1880s, and I can tell the difference between the 1880s bustle and the 1870s bustle because this is a much more vertical appearance, um, and the 1870s you looked sort of just like a giant fluff. Um, <laughs> they also, it was a very vertical era, and so their hats are also these weird stovepipe type hats that are, again, very vertical. And then the top photograph of gentlemen, just to give you a comparison for the men, um, this is President Chester Arthur um, and his trip through the park, uh, photographs taken by Haynes. Um, and you can see, uh, again, that there is some variation. Arthur himself, again, a wealthy, more prestigious individual, is wearing that sack suit or the three-piece suit, um, although he is in his informal wear, which you can tell because he's wearing his smoking cap instead of whatever type of cap he would have worn on horseback. Um, and then, but then you've got some men in the background who are a little more informal with that wool overshirt on instead. Um, they are wearing riding boots, at least President Arthur is. He's got probably knee-high boots on. The gentleman uh, to the right of him has probably a lower boot and then he's wearing uh, gaiters or spats over top that are leather. Um, again, because they're riding horses, that's, you know, if you get smacked by a brush, it's not going to tear your expensive pants. This is a photograph of mammoth containing um, probably some visitors, but also the uh, Henderson family. Uh, Lee has identified the fifth man from the right as possibly being, and I believe I've cut one man off, so he's actually the fourth man from the right, as potentially being um, George L. Henderson, uh, an assistant superintendent, and then later owner of the Cottage Hotel. Several of the ladies are probably his daughters and their husbands. Um, but this is just giving you another indication of what the 1880s clothing looks like in terms of that tall, very fitted style. Um, I pulled out this one group of women because the woman on the right is probably much younger, a teenager, and therefore her skirt is a bit shorter, and that's another indication um, of her age. Although both women are wearing skirts that are not touching the ground. So that you could show your ankle. In fact, you were often encouraged to show your ankle if it was particularly attractive. So, um, you, you, you don't have to have skirts on the ground. Um, you did not have to marry a gentleman just because he saw your ankle. So here's another alternative outfit, um, Georgina M. Singe in 1889. She says, my costume was peculiar as it had to be adapted to walking and climbing as well as horseback. It consisted of riding trousers, so the more fitted type of uh, trouser than the um, Turkish trouser, and uh, high leather leggings, a very short tweed skirt, a crimson flannel blouse, and a cowboy's felt hat to keep off the sun. We each wore a leather belt with pockets containing collapsible drinking cups and compasses, and uh, knives and string, etc., which we found a great comfort. I'm going to set this down so you can see my collapsible cup. So it's in a little leather case, and then it's a little collapsible silver cup. This was my great-grandfather's. So this is the first time I've had a need to 
use it, and I'm excited to have a, a need. So you can see she's got the, the, the more fitted and the riding with a skirt over top. Um, none of these photographs are in Yellowstone, but these are examples of this style. Now let me move to the next page. These are in Yellowstone. So the woman on the top is wearing, again, just fitting riding pants without the skirt. Um, we don't know exactly what she was wearing, but the caption on the photograph album, she, uh, the woman Janet um, labels her and her cousin, which is who is in the photograph, as the Bloomer Girls. So in 1902, they wore these bloomers. Um, this is actually Dr. Cora Smith Eaton, who was the first doctor to be um, entered into practice in North Dakota, and then later moves to Washington State, where she becomes a suffragist um, and is one of the first women to climb Mount Rainier. And also she and a group of women climb a, a different mountain and unfurl a banner in 1912 with votes for women on it. Um, and it got a lot of publicity and actually helped Washington State get the vote for women in 1912. Um, and then I don't know the name of this woman um, on the right, but uh, she is wearing the third option for riding astride, which is the divided riding skirt. Um, and I have an example of a divided riding skirt here with Alicia. Um, so she, you can see it looks perfectly proper if you need to go into the hotel or you know into town. But if you were to ride, you would have to get a little fancy and you unbutton a panel. Yeah, you have to take them all. You're not going to be able to see. <laughs> um, and this was a style that was actually quite common and popular in Montana, so you can ride a stride. Um, Evelyn Cameron wore one um, a little bit later in 1914. There's a photograph of her wearing it. Um, and she was, apparently she didn't make it full enough or she forgot to button it back over, I'm not sure. Um, but the sheriff of Miles City threatened to arrest her for impropriety while she was wearing it. Um, so, but this was a, another popular option and um, certainly would require less packing because you could get two outfits in one with it. Um, then Alicia is also wearing <laughs> a, a cotton blouse um, that's fairly loose which allows to breathe and move about. Um, and then this is the, you know, the knitwear of the day. Again, this is a good athletic type of outfit. Knitwear stretches. And so sweaters were very common um, in this period. The woman in the photograph has a, a longer, heavier sweater. Must have been colder out. Uh, and then Alicia is wearing a slightly earlier era sweater. So hers is more of a, a Edwardian era, turn of the century era um, sweater. So it's a bit more fitted at the waist and a bit shorter. And then she is wearing her... Teddy Roosevelt hat, um, which will keep the sun off her face. Um, and again, the tall volume allows air to circulate. Um, and then she has her scarf tied around her neck, which of course the cowboys wore and as a practicality, it both keeps the sun off of your neck and you can also use it to um, wet it down if you're hot um, or clean your face or anything like that. So she's ready to go um, for her writing. So there were many options for being active in Yellowstone. It was not common, uh, but it, it did continue on. Um, it did allow you to push the boundaries a bit, and it wasn't outside of propriety completely. Let me move on. You might be wondering, what did they do? You could also wear skirts and do things like climb mountains, or ladders, or ropes. Um, and so there are some examples here. I wanted to mention um, 
how we know they wore corsets. Um, here's a quote, my father fashioned a basket out of some stays from mother's corset and laid it in one of the pools of the terraces where the waters were constantly running and left it until our return. We found it beautifully encrusted with the mineral deposits. So if anybody has a basket, a coated specimen basket, might have corset stays in it. Um, that was 1874, but that's clear then that they were wearing corsets. Um, I'm going to skip over this because I'm running out of time, but um, this does mention um, Georgina Singe swam in Bath Lake, shocking the other people at the hotel. Um, but I thought that was interesting because it tells us that she probably had a swimsuit. I don't think she was swimming without a swimsuit because she had also previously swum in the Salt Lake in public. So other people were there, um, and she definitely would have had a bathing costume on at that point. Here's a bit about clothing again, um, where Georgina M. Singe is um, talking about cleaning and washing. I do not think either he, her guide Smithson, or her son Elijah ever took off their clothes the whole time they were with us. Certainly their toilet necessaries were extremely limited and consisted of a mattress, two rugs, and half a comb. Um, he did not at all, Smithson does not approve of Georgina carrying a sponge, saying it was a terrible thing to wash one's face in the park. However, I did not find my complexion any worse, though, of course, as one has to be careful and use plenty of Vaseline or cold cream as the chemical ingredients in the water and the alkali dust combined are apt to cause irritation of the skin. Now we're moving into a later era and also a wealthier person. Um, Alice Richards is talking about uh, dressing at the hotel. So at the Fountain Hotel, we were assigned to nice rooms where we bathed and dressed for dinner. We must have had a change of clothes for the evening, but I do not remember what we had. One young man whom we met said, why weren't we told that there were parties in the evening? Here you girls are all dressed up and I have only knickers. And then she's talking about her outfit. Um, that she did not have a very good outing out costume as the older girls wore long skirts and shirt waists, my skirt being a black moire silk, long and fairly full. Um, we three had jackets, Ruth had a jacket suit and a sailor hat, straw, and the two others wore cowboy hats and one wore a cap. So I'll ask my third model to come up. This is Mary Rose. Um, and she is about the same age as Alice Richards. Alice had just graduated from college. Um, and so she is wearing the shirtwaist. Um, the shirtwaist invention here is very loose um, and full and allows, now it's not completely loose. There's a whole lining that's like very tight and fitted. Um, <laughs> so you're not completely uncorseted here, although it looks like you could be. Um, and then she's got very big sleeves, which were a style at the time, but also um, allowed for movement and cooling. It's a little big on her, so it's not standing out quite the leg of mutton style it should be. Um, and then this is a cotton skirt, but it's in a style that would be similar to a, a silk skirt. Um, and by this point in the 1890s, you've dropped a couple of petticoats and you're a, a bit less encumbered underneath. But you still had your corset on um, and you were still moving with long skirts as we had seen. And then she's got the straw hat, um, the straw sailor hat, which is all the rage in the 1890s, uh, like one of the ladies. Um, so thank you. I'll have you come up in a minute, but we're going to continue forward. Here's uh, a bit more Hester Henschel in 1903, um, talking about taking a Wiley coach, um, and that many of the tourists left trunks and other superfluous baggage 
to be stored and only put on special clothing for the park, so suitable clothing for the park. So there was some choice in terms of what people were wearing. Here she's talking a bit more. They arrived late in camp one night, so they could not change um, while they went to dinner. Um, so clearly even the camps, the official camps, not the sagebrushers, you were expected to usually change for dinner in order to dine. So again, these are wealthier people. And then finally, you have the duster. Um, and I had the option of um, measuring and studying some original dusters in the museum collection, and I have made a reproduction, which I'm going to show you on Mary Rose here. So this is back to that later era where we saw what Mary Blackmiller might have worn. This is a waxed linen. So it continues to be very comfortable um, and very popular for specifically dusting, keeping dust off. Um, so this is a waxed linen. Um, it was worn not only by visitors, you can see many of the visitors here wearing um, the duster, um, and um, of different shapes and sizes. Um, and then if you turn around and grab a hold of the um, cloth there on top of the basket and cover your head with it, um, and then there is a netting over top that would keep the dust and you also hold your hat on if you were riding a tally-ho. Um, so this is fashioned after the ones. The ones that we have in our collection are actually what the stagecoach drivers wore. Um, and that's why they have those nice Yellowstone yellow buttons. Um, and so the stagecoach drivers would have worn them as well as the visitors. Um, I've heard stories that visitors, they were loaned, they would loan dusters to visitors, but I haven't found an account of that yet. Um, so it's possible that they had ones for the drivers and then also ones um, for the visitors. So here's the evolution of duster. On the left is the hoop skirt era moving forward, and then on the right, that is the automobile duster um, going on. So in conclusion, I'm pretty close. Um, there wasn't one outfit or style that people wore to Yellowstone. What people chose to wear varied depending on what their activity was, what their preference might have been, and what was the fashion of the different eras, so starting from the 1870s through the turn of the century into the early 20th century. Um, so unlike architecture, there is no park style, um, no architecture type thing for architecture. But you could push the boundaries. So while you weren't completely um, doing something completely out of the ordinary, you were able, this was your opportunity to get away with Turkish trousers or bloomers or riding breeches. So you could push the envelope a little bit. And I liked this example because it's two women in two different styles doing the same activity. So it shows you that a lot of it was simply preference and choice.